King, Episode 5, Oh, for a Muse of Fire. The Gem Theater is launched, the Grove Shakespeare Festival is conceived, a First Amendment crisis, and lifelong colleagues are met and made. Do you want to talk about your experience of MAME? Not so much, but I do want to reference that that period because I was signed a contract to choreograph MAME. My good friend and our fellow colleague from Bethany, Melinda Moreno, was directing it, and then she got a job. So a couple of weeks before we opened, I ended up moving into the directing as well. Um, but the point I wanted to make was that was that that ensemble person that you talked about when you were much younger and how you love building ensembles. You continued that all the way through your career, and you did that in this beginning phase of the, of the Grove, the Gem, and the Grove Shakespeare Festival. Because I look at this list of shows, and there are Bethany Colony people either directing it, choreographing it, starring in. It. I mean, I played Pippin and Pippin. You know, it it you hired your you kept your ensemble going, and then you eventually build an ensemble there uh, for the Shakespeare Festival. So. That I kind of think of that as a little bit of light in in the because you had your people around you while you're also being running around twirling plates, um, and that working with a tight ensemble is something that I think is a a constant theme through all of your years. You know, you you, you I think it's the producer in you. You really hire people that you can depend on, and 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 you certainly were doing it then. Um, well, I'll get back to the, I knew that, the, that I was building a house of cards. Yeah. Um, and I was telling them what they wanted to hear again, not totally the truth. But you also had a vision that wasn't a house of cards, which right. is your Shakespeare festival. I had a vision Edward of the Theater. Shakespeare festival and that was, that was, and this was going to be my springboard for that. And equity contracts too. Well, that, that came in and I was, I was going to, I was bound to determine to bring, Union actors in, and that happened in the second season. Now I'm going to spend some time on this first season because of so much happened during it. So you ended up uh, doing Mame and Pippin. Pippin, I, I had a, I, I hired a costume designer who I knew from Orange Coast College, and when we came to dress rehearsal, <laughs> there were no costumes, and I drove to his house. And I said, where are the costumes? And they were all in piles in material around his front living room. He had basically blown it. Uh, and it was, again, it was one of those things you learn. You go, okay. Uh, I never hired him again. Uh, he, he just, and so I went back to the cast and said, what are we going to do? And you guys came up with your own costumes. Mm -hmm. I think, did Sal direct that? Uh-huh, Sal directed it. Yeah, yeah. And then the next year, the next summer, which is in 1980, I asked Sal if he'll start a conservatory. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So all of this stuff is happening. You know, costume designer blows up. Um, I, I hire a guy from Disneyland to start doing some stuff as director. Cause again, I don't know any of these community theater directors. I don't know the people. So I have to hire the people I know or go after people who are, have some kind of background and influence to draw in critics and 
the newspapers. And, you know, we got front page coverage of the time at the opening of that theater. I mean, front page. And it was done by a, I think the front page article was done by a Times staff writer named Herman Wong. He becomes important because we hit, and everybody's happy pretty much until then. Pippin was a little reached. Now, the 1,200 subscribers that I got are people who did not go to the theater. They're, they're local community people who have, some of them have gone to the theater, but a lot of them are people who, it's community pride and Elks and Lions Club and people like that who think they should go to the theater. And it's a local community theater and it's, it's, the, the place is, from an audience point of view, a class affair. The seats are comfortable. They're wide. Uh, and everything looks beautiful. I mean, it's really decked out for the audience. Backstage was not really completed by the time we got things going. And um, while there was a makeup, a unified makeup room and a couple of uh, dressing rooms, they were small. They did have showers in them, which... Uh, was a good thing because equity required that. And then upstairs, we took a utility room and made it into a costume room. It was an unfinished room and it became the costume room. And then there was a green room upstairs. Now this is all before ADA and, and, you know, so there's a lot of stairs in this theater and there's not a lot of unit. There was a, a, a wheelchair ramp that we sat up six seats. If we didn't have wheelchair customers where we could oversell a show and there was a mayor's box that cost a great deal of money to sit six people in uncomfortable seats with a little lounge where they could have drinks and stuff. It was Sandra's idea that they could discuss politics and stuff up there, and it would be the center of the whole community. It was a good place to sleep. Yes. I slept there a lot in yes. between rehearsals when uh, I was exhausted. It was actually a good place so, to sleep. Thank you, Sandra. It was comfortable. From an actor's perspective, you're always looking for a place to sleep when you got a little time off. And then there was the green room, and there was a green room off of which there was supposed to be a kitchen, but that was never finished. Um, but that became my office. <clears throat> so we open, and I'm not direct, I directed the first show, but I'm doing so much. Yeah. I don't have time to go into a rehearsal. I don't actually direct until the f- really direct. I, I did in the second season and, and it was some of the best stuff that we had done. But, um, so Sal directed hot Al Baltimore. There is a nude scene where one of the characters comes out naked in it. I mean, hot Al Baltimore was Lanford Wilson. It was pretty middle of the road theater at that time. I didn't think it was at the edge, but for this community, it was on the edge. She wasn't naked, but she was in lingerie. And it was Lori Silver who played that part, who, who was who became Sal's constant companion. We started getting letters, complaint letters, from the audience. City hall politicians start feeling a little heat. We open the next show. We get through that. We open the next show. This was this wasn't directed by Sal, but it was it was a. Uh, it was a production where Bill Perkis, who had cast me as King Lear and who directed the Romeo and Juliet, 
that we did that first season where I played under a pseudonym because I was equity. Uh, I played the chorus and Prince Aeschylus uh, in that production. Um, and it was a hit. And and we sold the we sold the tickets at two dollars and fifty cents a piece, just to get audience. And we had people come in; they loved it. So that first Shakespeare production was a hit. But Bill is now cast as McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Bill has been a lifelong, not lifelong, but while he's teaching at Orchard Coast College, he lives in Garden Grove. He's got a very nice home in Garden Grove. But he doesn't like his neighbors, and he doesn't particularly like Garden Grove. Well, we start getting some heat on Hot Al Baltimore. That starts to make it into the newspapers. And then we open One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Bill starts ad-libbing in blue language that's not in the text, like motherfucker this and motherfucker that. To be specific. And cocksucker this and cocksucker that. Again, I'm speechless. So is the city council. Huge First Amendment thing breaks out. It gets into the papers. and So is this like all, all publicity is good publicity or is this well, damaging? Well, I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. I'm trying to make everybody happy. Yeah. I've got conservative people coming to me saying, I'm never coming to this theater again because of the language. And because of the lingerie nudity in Hot El Baltimore. And then I've got the leftists coming to me. I'm never going to come to this theater again if it's being censored. So I'm getting hit both ways. This is in the first year, right? And I'm going, okay, all right. I just want to do some Shakespeare, right? Costumers aren't delivering costumes. And, and costumes aren't delivering costumes and, and all hell's breaking loose. And we're doing show after show after show after show. Well, then, frankly, Sleuth comes in and that's fairly well received. And uh, I don't know if there was another play in there. There might have been. And then we finish it up with uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, we ended up losing subscribers. We ended up, we went from like 1200 to 800 the next year because one people don't have a theater going habit and two we ended up into this this ends up into the newspapers i get interviewed by npr later on uh, cnn isn't hasn't isn't alive yet but npr npr does an interview with me about my fighting city hall with first amendment rights this ends up on Armed Services Radio. And from what I understand, they ended up putting this interview on Armed Services Radio. I had people telling me they were in the middle of the of, of the desert of the Gobi Desert and heard Armed Services Radio with an interview with me. I heard people in Alaska heard the interview with me on Armed Services Radio through NPR because evidently they love broadcasting it out there about anything that has to do with Fighting City Hall. Because in America, we're a democracy. So I go through this. I've just put up this theater. We go through this excruciating First Amendment rights problem. And the city then decides to cast us adrift and create a nonprofit so that they have an arm's length away and aren't feeling the heat. They don't want to censor anything 
per se, except there's a born-again Christian who takes it up as a rally flag to use in his campaign to shut down the pornography that's being shown at this theater that every that three months before everybody loved. <laughs> and so I'm I'm fighting, I am now an enemy of City Hall. They cast me out. All in the first year. All in the first year. Sandra resigns. One, because she's having mental, she's having health problems. She she created, she's having heart problems and, and she can't go on. So she was supposed to be the executive director of it. I become the executive director of it. For lack of a better term, a puppet nonprofit is set up under the entitled the Village Green Arts Alliance. Sandra's the original executive director, but she never makes it. I become the executive director of it. And the city in the bylaws has sole authority to appoint the board of trustees, which means the city's in total control. They appoint five members of the community. One of them is this aforementioned woman, Gwen Weisner, who's the only person who voted against me and becomes my champion. And then several other, you know, a banker. Nobody in the arts. Nobody in the arts, but a lawyer who also is a champion, a guy named Stan Smolin, is on that original board. Did those two board members share, understand and or share your vision? Yes. So yes. they were excited. I mean, for, for Gwen... It was about beautifying Garden Grove, and she felt the theater was a positive step in that direction. Especially a Shakespeare company. Yeah, yeah. So that first year was tumultuous, and out of it comes this Village Green Fine Arts Association. I think it's, it went from Arts Alliance to Fine Arts Association because it also kicked out the art gallery, which was underfunded and had a part-time staff person who lived in Irvine and she, she became full time, but not for very much money. I demanded more money because I couldn't live on 12,000 a year at the time. And I said, with the amount of work that I've been doing. So they raised my salary, I think to 18,000, which then the city turned over about a hundred. And if I remember correctly, about $128,000. And that was the money off of which to operate the theater. Meanwhile, the city has gotten a $400,000 grant and has started construction for the outdoor amphitheater. I was hoping it was going to be in the summer of 1980, but it doesn't open until 1981. So you can't use it during the second season? No. During the second season, which starts that summer, I start the Shakespeare Festival with my first AEA guest artists. I go to Equity. I get guest artists for Ron Bowsom and Annie Long, who mm-hmm. were married at mm-hmm. the time and who were stalwarts at South Coast Repertory. Mm-hmm. And so there's your equity contracts. Those were my equity contracts. equity contracts. Those are the first equity contracts. And I get an ensemble. It was Shrew, right? It was it was Taming of the Shrew and Much Ado About Nothing, and Sal directed both of them. And it was in repertory which means one night you'd see one show, the next night you'd see another show. Which this is in the gem. It's in the gem. I hire legitimate designers. I hired the, I'd hired this lighting designer at uh, Disney to come in and light one of the shows. 
Well, he lights the scenery and there's no light on stage for the actors. And we get to dress rehearsal and the director says to me, I can't get him to put light on the actors. I fire him and I end up hiring, uh, calling up Long Beach State and asking if there's anybody over there who could come and help me out. So I went to my alma mater and they sent me Dave Palmer. And then Dave Palmer came in, lit the show and kind of saved my ass. And becomes a long time associate. Yeah. Working with you. Right. So we're now in the summer. I've asked Sal to take over a conservatory and I'm letting him direct the, the two Shakespeare's. Now, Shakespeare was not his thing, but Sal did have, was able to craft some people and, and get some, get a good company together. Opening weekend of the Shakespeare festival, Annie Long, who's playing Kate elbows Ron in the ribs and separates his ribs that he can't breathe. We have to shut down the show. This is Taming of the Shrew. We were going to open Much Ado About Nothing the next week. We have to stop rehearsals because Ron can't rehearse because he was playing Benedict. He was playing Benedict and Petruchio. And he can't breathe. And she's pl- she was playing um, Beatrice. Beatrice and Kate. Kate. So I go, what am I going to do? Annie suggests to me that I hire Carlo Rigiardo, who had done under Dan Sullivan's direction, Petruchio at South Coast Repertory. I call him up. He's not doing anything. He comes in. He learns the line. And then I have a long-time relationship with Carl Rigiardo, who becomes, who saves my bacon. We open both shows, reopen both shows, and got reasonable reviews and reasonable audiences for it. But we haven't had a break yet. We haven't stopped producing since June of 79. It is now in the middle of 1980. And the Shakespeare Festival is open. You know, here's my Shakespeare Festival. It's open. I've got two shows running in repertory, which is idiocy. I do repertory two other times in my life. Both times, I swear, I'm never going to do it again. Because you're you're having people work constantly to ch- turn over sets and costumes and stuff. And it's it's just exhausting. In theory, it works well. But in practice, uh, it's it's tough. It's really tough. But the concept of repertory is that you're doing multiple shows in repertory on various nights for people to come see. But you need a budget to pay those technical people. You need a budget to pay those people because the tech people don't work for free. Yeah. And they work constantly in, yeah. in rep. Yeah. So that was the second year of opening. Sal starts the conservatory, which is a way for him to make some money. I'm not taking anything out of it. And I come down in summers. I'm I'm in grad school in Oregon at this point, and I come down in summers to teach in the conservatory. Right. Sal starts. Now Sal had undermined me in Bethany, and by the time we had done with that, I was pretty much done with him. But I was in control of the situation, and he was working for me. By the second summer, he had gotten people to start working against me, and created this little coup d'état. Of, of people who were saying, I didn't know what I was doing. And this was right after the amphitheater opens in 1981. What was the opening production? South Pacific that Sal directed. Right, right. Beth Hansen was in it. Yeah. And didn't you have it, a child on the way at this point? Who? 
didn't you have a, a child on the way? I did. Elisa was uh, was conceived at this point, and we were, you know, so I I, I had a baby on the way yeah. too. Uh, and then we went in to do a repertory of Midsummer Night's Dream, and as you like it, as the book ended by two musicals in the amphitheater, which is South Pacific, which is not very good. It just wasn't. In fact, one of my one of my <laughs> Stan, who was on who was then on the board, came up to me and he said, I he said, I, I don't want to cast aspersion, but it looked like the Bay of Pigs. It, the casting it's a concept. Was, the casting was bad. Sal was at that point, Sal was subverting. Mm-hmm. He deliberately did things to make things not work. Meanwhile, I go out and I know that I need to make I need to make a bigger splash in the Los Angeles market. And I need to find I need to find somebody who is respected by the Los Angeles Times. I need to get the Times to come see one of my shows. I was starting to get drama log down. Had they been there since the first year? Not in not as critics. Okay. We got a lot of uh at that time, both the Register and the Orange County Register and the Times were vying for the Orange County newspaper market, and they had built a big plant mm-hmm. in Orange County. And so there was a whole um, section devoted to the arts and to the calendar section in Orange County. So we were getting a lot of PR from that. And there was also, just for context at that time, in major newspapers, there was consistent reviews of theater and articles about theater um so it was crucial wasn't it yeah it was it was essential to to build the audience because it wasn't just going to come from garden grove we needed to get the larger audience going so i call i called up a guy named john allison and john was a very well-known and respected director in los angeles he was he directed all the time and i I didn't know him. And so I went up into LA. I had had a meeting with him and talked to him. And he said, okay, I'll do it if you let me be art, if you call me the artistic director of the Shakespeare Festival. And I said, okay, you know, I'm producing director, you're artistic director. I needed his name to do this. And he opened a Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It. Well, he, I didn't know it at the time, but Sylvie Drake, who was the ma- who was a major critic of the Los Angeles Times, was very fond of John, knew him personally, and she came down. And while she made some snide remarks about uh, Disneyland, Shakespeare, and fireworks going off in the middle of the amphitheater, you know, at inappropriate times, you could hear the Disneyland fireworks. She gave it a rave review, and we started, and we got great audience. So that launches the amphitheater. That launches the amphitheater. And John wants to be, John Allison wants to be, I mean, he's doing it so that South South Coast will hire him, which South Coast does based on the work that he does with the Midsummer Night's Dream. I hire my second, I can't, because I'm paying him, I hire my second actor's equity guy named Bob McRae. And Bob plays false uh, plays uh, uh, Bob. bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream, and I think he plays uh, Touchstone or in As You Like It. But Bob Bob's a very good actor, but he's a little mercurial. 
And so, you know, when things don't go exactly as he wants them to go, or he didn't, you know, he had to walk to the box office to get his check. It wasn't delivered to him by the stage manager. And, and there was no covering on the walkway from the showers in the gym to the amphitheater. He starts complaining to equity, to the union. The union basically ignores him for the most part, but they do send me a letter asking me if there's anything I can do about these things. And most of them are pretty minor. Well, it kind of hit me in the heart uh, because here I'm, I'm doing everything I can to pay actors and I'm paying people at this point. I paid actors in the Shakespeare company, something. And I paid actors in that company. You something. paid me to do Pippin. Yeah. First year. Yeah. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to make it as professional as I can. And here comes this guy who basically, who is well known again in LA circles and, uh, he gets good reviews and the audiences love him, but he's, he's not talking to me. He's going to equity. So that rubbed me the wrong way. So I never hired him again. Uh, even though he applied and he wanted to do it as we became more well-known. John, on the other hand, won't do another summer unless I double his salary and make him permanent artistic director. And I said, uh, thanks, no thanks. And I let him go. Sal, on the other hand, has this coup d'etat planned to basically upend me at that point. I stand up to him and I basically fire him as well. And I don't use him anymore. The South Pacific was the last straw artistically because it was really a bad show. And, and then the coup d'etat was, I mean, it, it, it was just, it just wasn't working. The shows for the most part overall are being well-received and we're getting good audiences and attendance. And I'm very proud of the Shakespeare Festival. Um, did the outside venue get, um, the attention that I would imagine it did? Yeah, did it the did. Times cover that yeah. strongly? Yeah, it did cover it. And then Sylvie Drake made the offhanded remarks about Disneyland, Disneyland and stuff yeah. that I didn't appreciate, but that was, but we did get coverage and we did get front page. So by the end of your second season, things are moving in a little more positive direction. And I'm basically in charge. But you're doing everything. Yeah. So this takes- Did you have a, any kind of managing director, anybody looking over the no, business? So you're no. literally doing everything. Well, I had some I had some staff. I mean, in those days, when when the when it opened, I was able to hire a lot of part-time people. There was, and I've forgotten the name of it now, but it was under the Carter administration. It was getting people off the streets and mm-hmm. into part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And you could get federal money for that. And we hired a bunch of people. Some of them were people I knew and who were good, Steve Warner. Um, And Steve ended up, (laughs) now because we're now a nonprofit and we go through our first audit at the end of 19, that's required in the contract with the city. Well, I'd I'd never taken an an auditing class. and And I asked Steve to keep the receipts and, you know, and, take care of the books. So we faced this audit by city auditors and we're in the middle of it. And uh, something was a dime off. 
And the guy came down and he asked me about it. I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what, you know, I'll give you a dime if, you know, <laughs> if that helps. And then there was another thing that was $5,000 off. Well, that eventually got reconciled. But when they, when the auditors first came, they asked to see the books and they, they wanted to see the receipts. And I, I said, okay, Steve, <laughs> Steve had everything in a shoebox. And none of the receipts were stapled to the invoices and, and to the checks. It was a mess. And so this, the auditors were unable to give us a clean bill of health financially to the city. The city required us to meet with the city controller. Now, this was a guy named Tony Andrade. And I won't forget him because, one, he was a very kind man. Two, he knew what he was doing. And three, he helped me set up the books and stuff in a way that we could face an audit. That was- So that, you got some help. Well, I got help. Some management help. I got help. Yeah. I got help from the city of That's all great. places. Yeah. And, um, and he kind of took us under his wing and double checked and spot checked on things. So the next year when we went through the audit, we got a clean bill of health. Oh, good. When does the acting company start? Uh, let's see. Yeah, we're into 1982 now. I had known Lee Shallot by name and reputation only. She was a woman who led the, at that time was leading the conservatory at South Coast Repertory. She was underutilized by them. And I asked her if she would be willing to come and direct. I wanted to do King Lear and I wanted to star in it. <laughs> and she said, I'll direct for you, but I'm not going to have you do King Lear, one. And two, you're not ready to do King Lear. As a company? As a company. And she didn't have any faith. She didn't know me as an actor and she thought I was full of shit. So I went, so I backed off of that and I tried to convince her, but she didn't believe me. But you have to hire my boyfriend, Chris DeBory, who will direct Romeo and Juliet. So we got it. We came together with Romeo and Juliet and Much Ado About Nothing. Now from... 82, 83, and 84, those two became the artistic, real, the really functioning artistic director. I was in name. I was the producing artistic director. But they became the artistic force of that theater at that time. And she had been classically trained and had her MFA from uh, the University of Washington professional actor training program. She had done stuff and directed at South Coast Rep. She brought over some of her conservatory people from South Coast in the non-equity roles. And I was able to scrape up enough money for four equity contracts. Jumping back to the Midsummer Night's Dream, a guy named Bert Peachy, who was the dean at Rancho Santiago College comes to me with a proposal that we join forces like PCPA and Santa Maria and create a conservatory that will be worked out of Santa Ana College, Rancho Santiago, it was called at the time. They'll put in upwards of $100,000 in producing capital. In other words, they won't give me the money, 
but they'll pick up the printing, for example, set uh, expenses and things like that. $100,000. We're operating at about, we were operating then at about $250,000 to $300,000. This jumps us up to about $450,000 to $500,000 in our budget. That's major. That's a major jump. And it's reflected on stage in those, uh, in, in the opening productions of Much Ado About Nothing, or I think it was, was it Much Ado and Romeo and Juliet? Those were the two. No, it wasn't Much Ado. We'd already done Much Ado. True. Uh, no, we'd done Shrew. In 1982, we were going to do mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet that Chris Tabori, who had never directed a play, but had starred on Broadway. And all of their people came in and we made a leap, a huge leap in our level of professionalism. The shows, uh, and they brought Cliff Faulkner and Shigeru Yaji in as designers. Uh, And these were the top designers out of South Coast Rep. The shows looked fabulous. Cliff was kind of getting out of design. He was trying to, he'd already made a name for himself. Other people were coming in to design at South Coast Rep, but he did this, he did this, because he talked to me one and two, because he understood that what I wanted to do, which was to kind of create an Ashland South or at least a PCPA South, uh, Pacific coast performing arts at, out of Hancock college. Let me quickly just, just a little, cause it's going to come up later in 1982 in the summer, I got my master's degree, came down and taught, Sal was doing a conservatory at Chapman College. And at the end of that summer, I had had some problems up at the University of Oregon, decided not to go back and complete my PhD. And Chapman College needed somebody to come in and teach student-directed one acts. Um, And uh, they needed to have a master's degree, and I just got my master's degree. So I got that job, and that's when I start working as a part-time teacher at Chapman College in 1982. And then I talk him into letting me teach a uh, Commedia dell'arte class as well so I could make some more money. Um, so that's where, because that connection's going to come up in a couple years. Um, so at that point, I'm teaching at Chapman. A Player King is produced by Roland By, sound design, editing, and engineering by William Georges, directed, curated, and narrated by Elisa Braddock. The music was originally created for productions at Shakespeare Orange County.